Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 45, Stoic Physics and Esoteric Metaphysics. In this, our final episode on the Hellenistic and post-Hellenistic philosophical school of Stoicism, we're going to concentrate on the Stoics' ideas about how reality works, their physics. Now, long-suffering lovers of Western esotericism may be exasperated at this point and say something like, okay, we'll grant you Stoic esoteric hermeneutics, which you covered in the last episode. That stuff really does belong in a discussion of Western esotericism, because as you have tantalizingly hinted, it is taken on board by the late Platonists in a big way and sort of has a defining impact on the development of ideas of perennial wisdom and how to read it. But Stoic physics? Really? You're right, gentle listener. The Stoics had a naturalistic physics, one which, in other words, has no place in it for higher orders of reality, such as we find in the hierarchical cosmologies, which are such a mainstay of Western esotericism, at least until the modern period. It's not that the Stoics are atheists, they just think that God is something which is inside the universe. While a Platonist or a Kabbalist or a Sufi or an alchemist or what have you, while they might all be very interested in exactly how God's presence is made manifest in the natural world, we'll all insist at the same time on his concomitant absence. For these thinkers, God is, in some sense, transcendent. And these thinkers will also probably posit other levels of being below that of the supreme God, but still transcending the physical world. In other words, they will have a hierarchical reality with a lot of immaterial realities in it. For the Stoics, transcendence is an idea which is outright denied, and there is one unified but complex single world. So what's so esoteric about Stoic physics? Well, that's what we're going to discuss in this episode. The short answer, which we can give here, is that Stoicism put forward several key concepts in their physics, which went on to be adopted but transformed in Western esotericism. And this happened in two main ways, I would argue. Via Platonism and late antique religious movements like Gnosticism and Christianity, we see key Stoic physical concepts being used and transformed into transcendental immaterial realities but often with the same names and the same or analogous functions to the Stoic physical concepts. And in alchemy, astrology, and other occult sciences, we will see adoption of Stoic physics along lines, much more in line actually with Stoic naturalism, but still with new twists being added along the way. So we're mainly talking here about the Nachleben, the afterlife of Stoic ideas, and this is often twisted out of any resemblance of what the Stoics would have approved of. Lovers of Western esotericism will be familiar with this kind of creative misreading or opportunistic adaptation as a crucial motor in the evolution and innovation within esoteric currents of thought. Though we must say that not only esotericists do this by a long shot, pretty much every current of thought does this to some extent. But as usual, there's more to it than this and we need to look at the details. So in this episode, we shall concentrate on three Stoic ideas, pneuma, sympathia, and logos, discussing each in turn a little bit in its native Stoic habitat, and then giving some brief discussion to 
its afterlife transplanted into late Platonist thought and other interesting currents, such as alchemy, and from there on into Western esotericism. The whole discussion will be highly abbreviated. This episode should be seen as a heads-up for more detailed discussions of physics and metaphysics in coming episodes, rather than an in-depth discussion of Stoic physics. But before we get into that, let's return for a moment to the origins of Stoicism, for a bit of context. As we saw two episodes ago, Zeno of Citium, the founder of the Stoa, got his education from many of the finest philosophers of his day at Athens. But crucially, he studied with Polymo, the third successor to Plato in what's called the Old Academy. The Old Academy were the first wave of Plato's successors, whose works, unfortunately, are almost entirely lost, which is why they become such a riddle to later scholarship, a riddle that plays out in the discussions over whether Plato was an esoteric author or not. But we can say that the Old Academy were concerned with finding a philosophy that reconciled Plato's dialogues with Plato's oral teachings, both of which are strands of Platonic material that we discussed in episode 25 when we addressed the question of Platonic esotericism. Now, one of the most important dialogues in this context was Plato's Timaeus, and many scholars have pointed out that this work was a key stimulus for Zeno's philosophical project, and in particular, his physics. So to put it very briefly, and listeners who haven't heard episode 27 of the podcast on Plato's Timaeus might want to pause here and go back and listen to that one. The demiurge in the Timaeus constructs the world based on a perfect blueprint, the forms. The Stoics also have a blueprint, the Logos, but they instantiate this blueprint in the world, eliminating the need for an immaterial realm, an extra realm behind or on top of or outside the world in some way. Plato needs the forms as well to explain how discourse and thinking work. The Stoics also solve this problem with the rational pneuma. Plato's Timaeus makes the human being a microcosm of the celestial spheres. The Stoics also have a macrocosm-microcosm scheme, which they explain through the doctrine of cosmic sympathia, or cosmic sympathy. In short, one way of viewing Stoics physics, and this is an oversimplification, but it gives us a valuable insight, I think, into their project, is as in part a reaction to Platonic and early academic metaphysics, which takes the position that problems raised by Plato have physical answers. As you can imagine, this gives rise to some very interesting physics, because it's not every physical system that's going to be able to answer all these problems that Plato raises in the Timaeus and elsewhere. So let's start with the easy one, pneuma. This term is, in its root meaning, a normal Greek word for breath. This is how it appears in Homer. It's already synonymous with the idea of life, or at least animal life, in Homer. But this makes sense. Breath is synonymous with animal life in reality, because if you don't breathe, you die. So it means breath, but it can also be kind of metaphorically applied to just life. Now, the Stoics take this term and transform it into one of their many names for the active divine principle in the universe, the fire logos god pneuma we've been discussing in the last two episodes. So for the Stoics, pneuma no longer primarily means breath. They've taken an everyday term and given it a specialized philosophical meaning. The reason they used this term probably can be found in the philosophical precedents they had for doing so. The Ionian pre-Socratic Anaximenes, for example, in fragment B2, 
relates pneuma to air, which he took to be an elemental basis for all reality. Quote, Just as the psyche, soul, being our air, holds us together, so pneuma, wind or breath, and air enclose the whole cosmos. So here we see the soul, pneuma, and the cosmos, all important Greek concepts we've been discussing over the course of the podcast so far. So clearly already in the 6th century, when Anaximenes was writing, at least one Greek philosopher or natural scientist was experimenting with pneuma as a good term for some kind of universal force or universal element or principle. In the medical context, the 4th century medical writer Praxagoras of Kos had discussed pneuma in the context of what we call the blood vessels, even theorizing a pneumatic circulation of some kind. So it clearly no longer just meant breath to this doctor of the 4th century, but had some extended meaning to do with the vital force of life itself. But the backstory here isn't too important for our purposes. I just want to give an idea of why the Stoics might have chosen that word for this rather new physical principle they want to describe. The end result we want to look at is the fact that the Stoics took this term and made it something cosmological and divine, and also something which, while material, can fully interpenetrate other material objects. So the Stoics weren't atomists. That is, they didn't think that bodies were made up of some tiny individual particles, and if you get down to the small enough scale, you'll come to something that can't be further subdivided. They thought things were really solid, like they seem to be to our senses, that they don't have ultimate finest particles, they're just infinitely cuttable. So to understand their idea of pneuma, we need to take that on board, and then we have to take on board their doctrine of total mixture. The Stoics thought that the pneuma, the divine fire, or mix of fire and air, the two most active of the four classical elements, according to the Stoics, so really we should be saying the divine fire-air mix, but anyway, we'll just keep calling it the divine fire. This divine fire, which is extremely subtle in its nature, can totally intermix with every body in the entire universe. So there are no holes in the pneuma. It's not like the pneuma is out there, but then there's a big lump of lead and the pneuma sort of surrounds the lump of lead. It goes right through the lump of lead, just like it goes right through the air, just like it goes through everything. This doesn't seem very physical to modern ways of thinking. But again, for the Stoics, this is how physics worked. Some stuff is so subtle that it can completely and uniformly interpenetrate other stuff while still being thought of as material. Come to think of it, maybe they were on the trail of the modern concept of energy here, which, as Einstein showed, is fundamentally the same stuff as, well, stuff. Uh, Samuel Samborski argues that the Stoics came up with the first field theory with their doctrine of pneuma. And maybe this is right. That might be another score one for the Stoics moment. Now, all this is significant for Western esotericism in a number of ways. Pneuma is usually translated into English as spirit, both in the religious sense of, for example, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in Christianity, and in the physical sense, common in alchemy, as a kind of subtle essence of a substance. In fact, our modern term spirits, referring to alcohol, which in its pure form is the product of distillation, a very important alchemical process, is a relic of just such an understanding. If you extract the more subtle essence from a liquid like wine, say, you're left with the spiritus of the wine. Hence, spirits, distilled alcohol. Spiritus, we should mention here, is the term 
used to translate pneuma into Latin. And it also has the same root meaning of breathing. So think of English words like respiration. And it also has the same extended range of meanings to do with higher level entities, spirits like the Holy Spirit or a medieval Christian demon, and with the essence of physical substances. So in the evolution of Western esotericism, we can talk about pneuma spiritus as much the same term. Now, we don't want to spend too much time on pneuma here, but we should note a few more things as to Nachleben. Firstly, while this term was already around in philosophy and medicine at the time of the Stoics, as we've seen, they put their mark on it in a big way. And their treatment of the concept as a subtle, universal material substance with a fiery nature, able to interpenetrate other substances, became quite a generalized feature of physics in the West. To take one example, while we do not find pneuma in our earliest alchemical writer, the Pseudo-Democritus, the great Greco-Egyptian alchemist Zosimus of Panopolis has a comprehensive theory of pneuma. He associates the pneuma of a substance with, for example, the vapor it gives off when heated, or its color, or the tincture obtained from boiling herbs. So here we see a scientific evolution of the physical notion of pneuma as a subtle, defining, but in some way occult, property of material things. To take another example, the high medieval and early modern understanding of demons in Christianity as spiritual beings was precisely not that they were immaterial beings. Spiritual beings in this context means beings who have bodies of a very subtle substance, a spiritus, unlike angels or God, who really are immaterial. So we don't want to associate spiritual with immaterial in discussing these matters in the Western tradition, because technically they're very, very different concepts. This is why, for example, in the classic study of sex with demons, the demoniality of the Catholic writer Ludovico Maria Sinistrari, sex with demons is actually better than bestiality, even though it's still a sin. Because at least when you can join yourself with a demon, you are linking up with a higher form of substance, a spiritus, while a pig or whatever is just brute, unrefined matter of the lowest type. So there's really nothing redeeming about sex with a pig in his eyes. Secondly, from the time of the Stoics onward, philosophers and thinkers who needed to theorize a subtle, interpenetrating substance of some kind in the physical universe would use the term pneuma spiritus. But philosophers and thinkers who wanted to theorize a subtle, interpenetrating, supernatural reality of some kind, let's say the Holy Spirit of Christianity, which is not, at least in later interpretation, a physical reality, but rather an immaterial substance, these thinkers would also use the term pneuma spiritus. And their understanding of the meaning of the word will have been heavily influenced by the earlier stamp that the Stoics put on it. Thirdly, this is, in fact, what happened. In Plato, we don't get anything like a Stoic pneuma, but we do in the Platonists. In Plotinus, for example, the pneumatic body is one of the subtle bodies which the integrated embodied human being has. In later thinkers, there are quite a few more of these subtle bodies, such as the astral body. But in Christianity and in related movements, such as the so-called Gnosticism of Basilides, an early and very fascinating religious leader of the second century, whom we shall be discussing in the podcast, the term pneuma becomes hugely important. For Basilides, soul is the problem, the source of evil, 
And pneuma is the solution. So we need to stop being psychikoi, soulful, and become pneumatikoi, spiritual, in order to escape from the fallen state that we find ourselves in. So, like James Brown, Basilides said, I've got soul, and therefore I'm super bad. And what he needed was to get the spirit. So that was a quick introduction to the Stoic discussion of spirit, pneuma, and some of, of its afterlife, an adumbration of its afterlife, which we shall be exploring in some detail. Now, it would probably be helpful here to note that the Greek term daimon, which is a kind of intermediary entity between gods and human beings, is also sometimes translated into English as spirit. So we need to watch out, because the pneuma spiritus is something totally different from a daimon. In fact, it's pretty rare to find pneuma even quasi-personified, as it seems to be in Christian theology where, as one of the three personae of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, it does have some kind of individual character. But you don't get dialogues with the, the Holy Spirit, for example, as you do with Jesus or God the Father. And the general rule, I think, is that pneuma will be represented as more of a force or spiritual substance of some kind in later material, present in the world, but not of the world. In many cases, the pneuma is seen as the kind of glue which allows immaterial realities to interact with physical realities, which is probably the function of the pneumatic body in Plotinus that we mentioned earlier. Because a soul and a physical body just shouldn't be able to interact, unless there's some kind of an intermediary, subtle entity that allows them to stick together or touch each other. Now, let's move on and talk a bit about universal sympathy, the second of our Stoic physical doctrines that have a hugely important influence on Western esotericism. We discussed in the previous episode how the Stoic doctrine of occult signatures hidden in nature, which allow divination to function, but which are not themselves causal of the events that they predict, was the beginning of a major theme in Western esotericism, often referred to as the doctrine of correspondences. The term signatures that I've just used is actually anachronistic, because it goes to Paracelsus. The Stoics generally refer to them as signs, although it has become quite famous as a doctrine of signatures. This universal semiotics that the Stoics laid out, however, did have a causal twin in the doctrine of universal sympathy, sympathia. This idea goes right back to the early Stoics, but it becomes especially important for our purposes in the post-Hellenistic period aka the late Roman Republican period, aka the first century BCE or the first century and a half BCE. This is when Posidonius wrote, a philosopher who is especially interested in astrology, as we have noted before. So let's discuss how sympathia works in Stoicism, and then we'll see why this is important. The idea of sympathia, which is a Greek word having a root meaning of something like co-experiencing or co-undergoing, or undergoing together, right? The implication that all the parts of the universe being interconnected in the web of causes and effects are all affected when any one part is affected. Now, there are interpretational problems here and philosophical problems here, which we won't get into, but the idea is something like, or not unlike, the idea of a holographic universe. So not only are all the parts of the universe within the whole, which we would expect, but the whole is in some fashion 
within all the parts, or present to all the parts. So Q, a strong microcosm-macrocosm discourse in Stoicism, and a precedent for physicalist, naturalistic explanations of how human beings might be microcosmic exemplars of the universe. And you can explain this in a strictly physical, naturalistic sense with the Stoic idea of sympathia. Now, what's the specific relevance of this idea for astrology and occult sciences more generally? In addition to the classic Stoic doctrine that the stars, along with other things like the cracks and bumps in the livers of slaughtered animals, or the way certain birds fly at certain times, and all the other things that diviners can use to tell what's going to happen, which are all signs which tell us what is going to happen without causing the events that they foretell. Another strand of astrology takes the view that the stars are indeed causes, and this is usually through the medium of subtle influences which they exert onto the earth. This doctrine of astral influences has a very long life, and persists right up to the modern period. Here we see, if not its origin in Stoicism, at least its earliest authoritative formulation. And this probably goes back to Posidonius, or at least Posidonius was a major player in the development of this idea of astral influences. Despite the hyperbolic statements about Posidonius's influences, which tend to abound in scholarship, it is probably safe to say that this middle Stoic thinker was a major influence on later ideas about stellar influence through his expounding of the doctrine of sympathia in the specific context of astrology-astronomy. So we will see sympathia again many times, not least in Plotinus and later Platonists, who use it as one tool for understanding the ways in which the physical cosmos is all interconnected, and also how it participates in the higher immaterial realities. So again, this Platonist use of the idea of sympathia is a detournement, or even a perversion, of Stoic doctrine. But it went on to supplant the original naturalistic Stoic ideas. But within the alchemical tradition, we also see a playing out of the idea of sympathy, cosmic sympathy, one which is in fact much more in line with the peculiar physicalism found within Stoicism itself. And of course we see in the most important modern occult science, I refer of course to quantum physics, a return of a very strong form of Stoic sympathia. Because quantum physics has the idea, which although no one can really comprehend it, is now considered experimentally verified, the idea of quantum entanglement, whereby two or more unconnected particles in different places can undergo the same change at the same time when the thing causing the change is only applied to one of the two or more particles. In other words, one cause having more than one effect with no medium transmitting the effect. You could call it magic, but if you wanted to give it a more scientific or philosophical explanation, you could call it sympathia. So Stoic sympathia is back, and I think we can rack that one up as another score for the Stoics. Now last, but certainly not least, we need to get to grips with the Stoic doctrine of Logos, which is, as we have seen, another aspect of the God-Fire-Pneuma complex which pervades our reality and makes it what it is. Now, we've mentioned this term Logos before. We first discussed it in a bit of depth in our episode on Heraclitus, episode 19 of the podcast, where we pointed out that it's a Greek word with a very complex semantic sphere 
encompassing as it does both spoken words, thoughts, and calculations, but also the idea of reasoning or a certain kind of thinking. And in the course of the development of Greek philosophy, this later meaning grows in importance, to the point that in Aristotle, logos has come to be synonymous to some degree with a certain type of reasoned discourse and thought, what we commonly think of as rational argumentation, proof, falsification, and this whole procedure. Good. So, we also mentioned in episode 19 that there are passages in Heraclitus which might seem to indicate that Heraclitus is associating this term logos with something more like a physical or metaphysical principle. Obviously, the term metaphysical here is anachronistic because no one has thought up this word yet. It, it appears in the context of Aristotle's writings, but we use it here because the kind of thing which might be meant by this Heraclitian logos would be something that we would probably label as metaphysical if he really thought that. And this was an idea advanced by the scholar Kirk in his study of Heraclitus's cosmic fragments. But on balance, I agree with the more consensus view that Heraclitus is actually referring to something more like informational content or coherence or maybe just explanation or account when he speaks of logos. Even though Heraclitus being the riddling philosopher that he is, it's hard to understand what he's getting at when he says things like, the logos of the soul is so deep and so on. You just think, really? Is that an account? Is that an explanation? Or is he talking about something more oogly-boogly here? Putting that question aside, however, something happens in history. The Stoics, who used certain aspects of Heraclitus in their own philosophy, notably taking on board his idea of fire as the prime active principle of reality, took what has been called a corporealist reading of Logos. For the Stoics, Logos really is a kind of something in the universe. It's a T, to use their terminology, a what, a thing. It is rooted in nature and has several aspects. The seminal Logos, the Logos Spermaticos, which is both the blueprint and the physical cause for nature being as it is, and all the objects in nature having the form they have, but also the Logos Prophoricos, which takes the form of spoken words. Although it need not be instantiated in this way, as we mentioned two episodes ago, it can remain in the latent form of thoughts, which are Logos. So one Logos, multiple effects, all of them physical. So, adult human beings, because they are fully rational, that is, their thought is 100% Logos, and this is an idea which got the Stoics into trouble because they wanted to argue at the same time that, of course, humans can make mistakes and so forth, but nevertheless they insist that humans are 100% Logistikoi, rational, their thought is Logos. Because humans are fully rational, they're basically part of the Logos, in its pure manifestation, not only because the Logos makes them and makes them grow into the humans that they are and so on, but also because they sort of do the Logos, they perform the Logos whenever they reason or whenever they open their mouths to speak. Now, the two-volume work From Word to Silence by Raoul Mortley is highly recommended to our listeners. It's an ambitious attempt to trace the development in Greek thought, which leads from thinkers like Plato and Aristotle for whom anything which is real can basically be thought and spoken, to thinkers like Plotinus, for whom a major part of reality is ineffable. That is, it is outside of the reach 
of Logos. And Mortley's account of this evolution in thought places great emphasis on the Stoic corporealization of Logos, making Logos into a principle of reality itself. As he points out, Kirk's idea that Logos in Heraclitus can be read in as some kind of arche, as some kind of originating principle of reality, only makes sense if we think that this kind of thinking was really possible in the 6th century, when Heraclitus was writing. But, Mortley argues, the corporealist reading of Logos is, quote, on the whole, a late Greek phenomenon, and it requires a considerable leap to portray it as such in this early period, end of quote. When we do see this change is with the Stoics. And from the Stoics onward, seemingly everyone wants to get in on the act. So the idea that Logos is a kind of cosmic principle becomes big business. But they don't, for the most part, want the Stoic physicalism, at least not from about the 3rd century CE onward. They want the Logos to become a real fundamental property of reality, which gives it intelligibility and the rational order which we see around us, but they want it to be immaterial. Now, the first great move toward this way of thinking, after the Stoics, the first one that survives anyway, comes in Philo of Alexandria, whose philosophy Mortley sees as the beginning of Logos's appropriation by ontology. For Philo, who is perhaps the first great Western esotericist, as we shall see in the course of the podcast, the Logos is the same thing as Plato's world soul in the Timaeus. And as we've seen, the Stoics were very concerned with this dialogue from the beginning. So perhaps the tendency of later thinkers to twist their Stoic doctrine into a non-naturalistic direction comes from a basic structural kinship of ideas rooted in the fact that many of the Stoic ideas came from exegesis of the Timaeus in the first place. At any rate, with Philo, who seems to have straddled the first centuries BCE and CE, we see a full-blown Logos doctrine alongside a theistic, immaterial, ineffable god. And we see a lot of other accoutrements typical of Western esoteric worldviews. Turning to the book of John, which was probably reached its final form sometime near the end of the first century CE, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and God was the Logos. Again, the Logos here is no longer anything like an account or speech or reasoning or anything like that. We're in ontological principle territory here, or arguably we're in personal God territory. In Plotinus, in the third century, the Logoi, which he sometimes even calls Logoi Spermatikoi, adopting the fully Stoic terminology, are no longer material. They exist within the forms and within soul and so forth, all of which are immaterial realities for Plotinus. But the Logoi in Plotinus function pretty much exactly like the Stoic seminal Logoi. They give form and cause things to grow the way they grow and so forth. So the Logoi in a seed will make a particular type of plant grow from that seed. The Logoi in the soul make the body the way it is, etc., etc. This list of later uses of Logos as a kind of principle could be extended, and it will be extended in future episodes of the podcast. But for now, this will hopefully have served to indicate the importance of this aspect of Stoic physics for later esotericisms. And I'd just like to say here that the fact that Logos has a root meaning of speech and thinking, in other words, a very human meaning, means that when you apply it 
to the universe or to God even, you are opening the door to all manner of esoteric readings of the universe, of the sort that we see in, for example, Kabbalah, where reality becomes a linguistic phenomenon in some sense, or in Islamic letterism, or in other occult sciences, which, for example, see number as constitutive of reality, like some strands of modern physics. All of these occult sciences and ways of seeing the world are operating under some assumption that the way the universe works, the way the divine works, partakes of logos both in the sense of a kind of ordered rationality in some cosmic sense, but also maybe in the root meaning or partaking of the root meaning of having to do with speech and reasoning of the sort that humans get up to. At any rate, this has been a survey of Stoic physics, which has had very little discussion of how Stoic physics actually worked for the Stoics. And for those who are intrigued, do follow up that story. The bibliography to this episode provides some good starting points. This episode's also been highly selective, just cherry-picking a few concepts from Stoic physics which have this fascinating afterlife in Western esotericism and metaphysics that we are so interested in documenting. But hopefully this episode has done its job of flagging up Pneuma, Sympathia, and the corporealist Logos as three milestones in the history of esoteric thought, which we must trace back to the Stoics. Even when the Stoa were working with earlier materials, and they pretty much always were, either Zeno reacting to and reformulating Heraclitus, Plato, the early academy, and actually the whole kind of philosophical and scientific discussion going on in Athens in his time, or the later Stoics reacting to and unpacking Zeno's rather terse and compressed sayings and trying to create a systematic, all-encompassing philosophy from it. Even when these Stoics were working with this earlier stuff, their take on these concepts was really groundbreaking and was very influential. So it made certain important conclusions, which mean that it is to the Stoics that we must look when we want to trace the genealogies of concepts like a universal logos or a universal spirit or cosmic sympathy. In the next episode, we will move on to another philosophical movement arising in the Hellenistic period. But this one has the twin benefits of not really being a movement at all, and also being an undisputed cornerstone of Western esotericism. I refer, of course, to Pythagoreanism, or rather, Neo-Pythagoreanism. Or rather, a bunch of texts which move under the name of Neo-Pythagoreanism, but which really aren't an ism at all. Until then, even if you find yourself caught in a modern empirical worldview with a naturalistic explanation for all the things that happen, you can take comfort in the fact that occult science is alive and well and still carrying the flag for Stoicism via quantum entanglement. And stay comfortably esoteric.